1: good afternoon good afternoon good afternoon afternoon and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland I'm Stephen Love program officer for the environment at the Cleveland Foundation and a proud City Club member it's my pleasure to introduce today's speaker the president and CEO of Smart Growth America Calvin Gladney for the past six months the City Club and the larger Cleveland community have been engaged in conversations around the Cuyahoga River fire and its aftermath and how it set the stage for the modern environmental movement. Today, we conclude the Igniting the Future series with a forum featuring Mr. Gladney, a nationally recognized thought leader on the equitable and sustainable revitalization of communities and the impacts and land use of climate change. In April of 2018, Mr. Gladney was named President and CEO of Smart Growth America, an organization dedicated to researching, advocating for, and leading coalitions to bring better development strategies to communities nationwide. Prior to accepting this role, he was managing partner of Mosaic Urban Partners, a real estate development and advisory services firm that advised nonprofits, cities, and elected officials on how to sustainably and equitably regenerate their communities. In 2017, Mr. Gladney was also the Urban Land Institute's Senior Visiting Fellow for Equity. Over the past 10 years, Mr. Gladney has worked on community revitalization projects in more than 25 cities and has served as a strategic advisor on projects estimated uh, to cost over $1 billion and totaling more than 5 million square feet of planned development. Mr. Gladney holds a Bachelor of Science from Cornell University, a JD from Harvard Law School, and is a lead accredited professional. Esteemed guests, members, and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me in welcoming Mr. Calvin Gladney.
2: Well, thanks for that introduction. And I just want to put a plug for the first question on Q&A, which should be, what is TikTok? (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I always like to add, too, like bios and who, who you are. And I always like to say that I got my best education growing up in public housing in Brooklyn. So you can hear the credentials, but don't let the pocket square fool you. Um, And just, again, wanted to say, or actually wanted to say thank you for everybody who brought me here, particularly Stephanie. I'm not sure where she is, but she keeps all the trains running on time, as everybody knows. So particular thanks to her, but uh, to both foundations and the APA for having me here. And um, actually, Dan was telling me earlier that one of the creeds here is, have no logs to roll. But they brought me here because I'm going to roll some logs today, and hopefully you're going (laughs) to. Do some log rolling with me. So are you with me? Perfect. Um, I always like to know you guys know a little bit about me. Just one quick question, a couple questions for for the audience, just to know who's in the room. How many people here are planners? Oh, okay. Uh, Public sector folks. You work in the government. Okay, so it's a lot of public sector planners here. Okay. (laughs) Got it. Got it. Got it, coffee's kicking in, I'm getting this. Okay, um, how many people here, strictly private sector, run a business? Okay, okay, good. Any elected officials so we know what to say and not say? There you go, right in front of me, there we go, there we go. Okay, we're gonna change a couple of slides just real quickly, okay, so. Well, again, thanks for having me. Um, let's have this conversation here. Obviously, it's being live streamed, and you see my Twitter handle there, Smart Growth CEO, so we can have the conversation at whatever level you wanna have it. So, but let's dive in. Growing smart in Cleveland. Well, built into there is the question of smart growth, and so you might not know the organization, so just wanted to give you a quick sense of who we are. Um, and we have a North Star. This is the reason why we exist, and. If we, if we actually solved these challenges or got here, we sort of wouldn't have a reason to continue. But it's all about creating livable places, healthier people, and a sharing of prosperity when you revitalize communities. That's us in a nutshell. And we want to use these tools and principles that we call smart growth to get to those outcomes. So smart growth is just a tool. It's not the outcome. Another thing I want to say is, if you ever hear anyone say that there's such thing as, equitable smart growth, tell them there's no such thing. If you're not doing smart growth in an equitable way, then you're not doing smart growth. So I just want to get that little piece out of there. And We're kind of a family of companies, by the way, so you may have heard of Transportation for America, our National Complete Coalition, or some of the other teams and groups, our national um, triple bottom line developers coalition called LOCUS. So you may have heard of members of the team and not necessarily associated with smart growth, but these other names, so, and you'll hear me drop them a little bit all along the way. So just want to give you that quick um, visual. So, fires, fires. Now this is actually Detroit, 1967. This was, there was riots in Detroit. Um, There's been lots of fires. Um, this is Washington, D.C. This was 1968, unfortunate assassination. Just learned that Bobby Kennedy came and spoke um, just the next day here at the Cleveland uh, uh, at the City Club. So, you know, it's hallowed halls to be here. Um, but fire, does anybody recognize that fire? Yeah. Cleveland 1969. Now, fun fact that a lot of you may know that actually many of the pictures of the fire are not the actual fire. This is a picture of a fire on the river from 1952. The main pictures that were in Time Magazine were actually not from the actual fire, because these were bigger, more interesting visuals. And so many of the pictures that you think are the fire were not actually the fire. But just a little side note, just in case you know. Fun fact, you can, you know, happy hour later, you can sort of, you know, surprise your friends, so. Um, And you know, after the fire, lots of things have happened in Cleveland. So we're gonna talk today about how to grow, how to grow smart. And by the way, the opposite of smart growth is not dumb growth, by the way, so don't let anybody say that as well. But you know, and after the fire, lots of things happen. We'll talk about it. I know they've talked about it in other series, but also Cleveland has had some challenges when it comes to growth, and you can think about a number of metrics. So let's just talk about a couple. You can talk about population growth, and what we're not gonna do today is compare ourselves to Columbus, Ohio, right? It's like, oh, Columbus, they're so much bigger. Oh my God, right? But what we can do is compare ourselves to similarly sized cities and say, well, what's been happening with those cities who are really at the kind of same place in terms of size and therefore capacity and resources? And unfortunately, even when you look at these cities, and I look at these cities, and I'm a member of Believe Land, and I look at these cities and say, I mean, Tulsa's not as cool as Cleveland. Wichita. Now, is anybody here from Tulsa, by the way? you know, so you look at these cities and you say, hey, what's going on with Cleveland? These cities of a similar size, similar scale, Midwestern. I didn't put any of the sort of California cities or Austin or these other cities where you're like, well, they got better weather, they got all these other things. Like, these are cities that you would say, hmm, now what, what's the difference? And I'm going to posit to you today that some of the difference is how they grew. And, they, and, and one of the ways that we're going to talk about today on making you grow more smart is by being a community shareholder. That's sort of the talk. But but beyond population growth, you can also look at plus 60%. So if you go back to the previous slide, not only did it say that Cleveland's population in the last sort of recent years has decreased, which we all know, but it's been decreasing essentially since 1950 and is down about 60% from the high. Um, Down 60%. Now, this says plus 60% because at the same time, you guys have just about 60% more roads and highways. So let's put those two facts together, right? We have 60% less population, but we have almost 60% more roads and highways. That's not smart growth, right? That is a recipe, and when you think about if you think about Ohio, if you even think about the neighborhoods in Cleveland, what we've kind of done is we now have these hot spots. And I was talking to John about this yesterday, where John was explaining how like different neighborhoods are the new hotspots. So then we go put a bunch of infrastructure out there and we do a bunch of things there, and the retail goes there, but then the retail closes in the other neighborhoods. And of course, we have historically disinvested neighborhoods in Cleveland. We know what those neighborhoods are. We know typically the type of folks that live in those neighborhoods. And so a way to not grow smart is to have your transportation system continue to sprawl. Oftentimes, sprawl is talked about just in terms of residential, but it's actually also the transportation system. It's the infrastructure and the negative fiscal impacts of doing that. So just wanted to point that out. And then kind of finally, and you know, if you think about real estate and you take Cleveland in context and you think about how Cleveland has grown, I mean, if you look at single-family home prices, as an example, right now, they're still at pre-recession, they're just about at pre-recession, and I'm talking 2004, not Great Recession. They're still at pre-recession levels. And so when you look at cities around the country and you say, well, how did those cities come back? It's because of what they did and where they did it. What they did and how, where they did it. And one of our studies, um, there's a, um, and I don't know if anyone has read this report, it's called Foot Traffic Ahead. Um, We partnered with George Washington, um, Yardi, Cushman and Wakefield, and a couple of others to write a report to really analyze the metro areas, particularly the largest metro areas around the country, and how they were growing, and what were the fundamental differences and the key reason why. And the key reason why really got down to what we would consider a fundamental principle of smart growth, which is make sure you build where people already are and make those places walkable livable, multimodal, and actually bring density in different types of housing stock to those places. So you want a mix of uses in those places, and you want a mix of housing stock, and you want to have infrastructure that supports pedestrians, people of different abilities, and you want some of the people who are already there as all of the amenities are coming, as all of the good changes are happening, some people can call that gentrification, by the way, You want the folks that were there to benefit and be able to stay. So I always like to say, it's not about being anti-gentrification. It's about being anti-displacement. It's not about anti-gentrification. It's about being anti, well, I can't benefit from the things that have come. So glad we're on the same page on that. So now, I'm going to tell you to do three things today. In terms of how to become a community shareholder, but I, I just want to talk about the concept first. So you see the word "project" there, but this could also be an urban plan. This could be your business. This could be, you know, a transportation deal. So we often, when we're thinking about how to grow, we think about like this one thing: our business, our project. But actually, our project or our business or this plan, sits within a larger community. And when you sit within a larger community, as opposed to just saying, well, it's about my customers, it's about the plan, it's about this particular neighborhood of the plan, what we have to do is think more holistically, think in a more interdisciplinary way, think about connections. And if you do that, and we'll talk about three ways how, that's when you're acting as a community stakeholder. And so that's what we're going to talk about today, how to bring smart growth and continue to grow smartly in Cleveland and greater Ohio, right, because there's always a regional context, and let's do that by being community shareholders. So I'm gonna tell you to do three things today. One is to think differently. Easy, right? Secondly, I'm gonna tell you to assume differently, and then third, act differently. So let's kinda go through those, those three things. So first, think differently. It's Just a reminder slide for me, actually, but no. Think differently, so first, Um, Well, we have a lot of planners in the rule, So part of what I want us to do in terms of thinking differently and having this kind of holistic viewpoint of a community shareholder is that you say to yourself, well, is the way we tend to think about areas the right way? We tend to say, well, there's urban areas, there's the central city, there's Cleveland, or even when you're breaking it up in terms of neighborhoods, we say, oh, well, there's urban neighborhoods in Cleveland, and then there are neighborhoods that kind of feel suburban even though they're in the city. But that dichotomy is not the most important way to think about how to, how to grow smart in Cleveland. That dichotomy actually really isn't the true way to think about the differences. The differences are really broken down into places that are walkable urban and placeable places that are drivable suburban. So it's the difference of the spectrum of how walkable an area is versus the need to drive. That dichotomy is the way I want you to start thinking differently. Because if you think about things in that way, then your definition of community expands. And the way you think about what you should do next and what's important and your intentionality changes. So that's just one way of thinking differently. The other thing, and I know we have, um, we have some real estate folks in the room. Um, so if you think about, even if you think about these things differently, it's like, why do I really care? Well, part of the reason you care is cash rules everything around me. Anybody get the Wu-Tang reference there? (laughs) Yeah, did that. Um, So one of the findings in our report, and one of the main findings is, it's not just nice to live in a livable, walkable, multimodal, pedestrian-oriented, pedestrian-safe area. When you think about rents, when you think about sales prices, when you think about office rents, when you think about absorption, you think about any real estate related metric that you can fathom. Livable, walkable places do better. And not only do they do better, they've been doing better and taking over more market share forever. So that's the math. So that's another reason to think about things differently, not just because it's a good thing to do, but actually it's good business. It's good business. And you know these are just sort of the facts there. Um, and when you think about premiums, and we like to focus on rent because it's an easy metric that you can compare around the country, not only is there a rent premium when you get a livable, walkable place that's transit-served and multimodal, that rent premium has been growing over time. And actually, that's interesting because that's the reverse of what was happening 10, 15 years ago, right, where everything was moving out to the suburbs, people were leaving the city, people were leaving places that were livable, walkable, and you know, we were building things called Malls, remember, remember malls? Anybody here been to a mall in the last month? Malls, right? <laughs> office parks. But if you think about going back to my thinking differently in the dichotomy, the difference between malls and office parks and where you see the premiums, where places are more livable, and frankly, the public health outcomes are better, the difference is, are they walkable? Right? The mall you have to drive to, particularly because the location is there. It has a huge parking lot. So you oftentimes talk about walkability, and the only walkability you get at the mall is the walk in the parking garage. It's another John joke that I got from him yesterday, actually. Um, And so one of the things we did in our report is analyze walkability and look at cities around the country and found all these premiums and these differences. And then we said, well, where are things going? Like, where is the momentum? And I know you can't see this slide, but you probably can see this arrow. That's Cleveland. Kind of meh. Kind of right in the middle, right? It's like, not that walkable? Not the worst, right? You're not like Tempe. You're not like Arizona. but not necessarily moving in the right direction. And so when you think about a lot of the real estate challenges, the growth challenges, the GDP challenges, the challenges on economic development and bringing businesses, I believe and we believe that it goes back to are you building livable, walkable places? And are you using the current infrastructure? Are you doing more downtown? And are you taking some of that livability and that walkability and that way of thinking about things and bringing them to certain neighborhoods. And if you're not, that's where you're not getting smart growth. So, Cleveland. So another thing I just want you to think differently is all the urban planners in the room and everybody here, I'm gonna speak over a change in the way you're gonna think about yourselves. It's gonna happen right now. You are now all, and always have been, Transportation professionals. So, anybody here ever designed something like this? Don't put your hand up. <laughs> it's not a good idea. This is sprawl. This is bad. But actually, just in case you were wondering, just make you know Avi, but had to say it. Um, this is residential. But somebody planned this. Somebody designed this. This is an example of planning. And you think about this as planning, but this is actually also transportation decisions. Because when you decide to plan a community like this, when you decide to put a community where this community is likely located, you can do this at the neighborhood scale, you can do this at the city scale, you can do this at the regional scale. When you do this type of planning, you are also simultaneously making transportation decisions. You're also making fiscal and economic health decisions for the city. So this planning is actually also having you do transportation decisions because now you've decided and forced people to have to get in a car. And if you have to get in a car, then you're probably not walking. And if you have to get in a car, in many places, that also usually means, do you see sidewalks in this visual? So you're not doing things like complete streets. People here are familiar with the idea of complete streets. We want the streets to be not just for the car. The right of way is for everyone, so it's for pedestrians. It's for the new mobility, scooters whatever you want to call it, jump bikes, electric bikes, it's for everybody, It's particularly for walkers. Um, Just as a side note, I don't know how many people know that the concept of jaywalking was created by the automobile industry. So at some point, the word jay was a negative had a negative connotation, but they created the term to have a negative association with people, with pedestrians walking, so that there would be this bad feeling, and actually that the car would be dominant, and pedestrians would always be looked upon, and looked upon badly. And as a matter of fact, next time you watch the news, watch the news tonight, listen to what they say when someone gets hit by a car. They'll say, Calvin Gladney was hit by a car but they won't say who the driver was. They will describe whether I had a phone in my hand or whether I was in the crosswalk, but they don't say anything about the driver. So we've created both in words, and we'll call it an accident rather than a crash. So we use vocabulary in ways that really get to planning decisions and community design decisions that get you to transportation decisions that all get you down to is a pedestrian safe and are we valuing and making streets complete and having it be for everybody? So you guys are transportation professionals, even if you work in urban planning. And that's a way to think differently. And as a matter of fact, if you just needed some visuals, whether it's crosswalks, whether it's traffic circles, whether it's bulb outs, you know, part of the challenge is making sure that we don't have the need for speed and we don't design our neighborhoods and our city in order to make people get places faster. And that's a design issue. And so you're a transportation professional when you design a neighborhood that allows for certain size streets and certain size crosswalks. I don't know if anybody here is from Michigan, but anybody here heard the concept of a Michigan left? Well, that's called bad community design and those end up being transportation decisions. And By the way, just in case you don't know, a Michigan left is where you have to go far past where you actually wanna go. You actually wanna go right there, but there's no crosswalk, there's no sidewalk, there's no way to get right there, so you have to go past where you're going, make a left, essentially a U-turn to get back to where you wanna be. So, see, I get the rag on Michigan because we're in Ohio, (laughs) right? I don't do that slide in Detroit, by the way. So, um, but we can focus on streets You're transportation professionals, um, but you should also focus on this, and I don't know if this visual actually helps you understand what this is, but let me give you a better visual. Now, does that make sense? AVs, autonomous vehicles? But your challenge as planners, now transportation professionals, as elected officials, now transportation professionals, is not the AVs, it's the algorithms. It's the algorithms. Because there was just a study that showed that, hmm, these vehicles, based on the data and the inputs and who put the inputs in, they don't see bicyclists that well. So they tend to hit bikers because they don't see them. Because algorithms don't see, they take a set of data and say, well, let me approximate what I think is there, and then I will keep going or not. And right now, the algorithms, because they were usually made by folks that drive or have an auto-dominant mindset, they actually don't see bikers. And so, you might be an urban planner, you might be an elected official, and you might be a business person, and you might say, well, I don't really, this AV's things, it's a novelty, it doesn't really matter to me, but who are your customers? Can they cross the street safely? Are they biking? You know, millennials, uh, any millennials in the house? Some of you sheepishly put your hand up. You know you want to own that. Like, yeah, all you old people, I'm still young. (laughs) I know, I know. Um, But the algorithms are what we need to focus on. And if you're focusing on the algorithms, that goes back to transportation, that goes back to your plan. I mean, my basic point is you can't sit in a vacuum if you're going to be a community stakeholder and a community shareholder and say to yourself, I'm thinking holistically, I'm just going to do my plan or I'm going to run my business and only focus on my customers or I'm only going to do my thing because all these things are interconnected. And that's the way we have to think differently. And the algorithms are part of that. Now, I said assume differently. And this is going to be a conversation about intentionality and it's gonna be a conversation about uh, intentionality that probably actually is a little log rolling. It's a little log rolling. Let's talk about equity. Let's talk about race. And I don't know if you you noticed that these are people of color on, it's kind of an interesting little slide. But this is the slide that just shows the difference between equality and equity. You may have seen this where people are standing in front of fences and the like. So one of the things on that fences slide, and one of the reasons why I don't use it, is the challenge is, the social justice point is, why is there a fence? So why, why do we show like, oh, we've gotten to equity when you can reasonably look over the fence? The point is, let's get to the point where there is no fence then we won't have this issue. So, But let's talk about equity, let's talk about racial equity, and let's talk about why um, you have to assume differently. So, and just in case, there might be some folks in here who are like, well, philosophically, I never turn my cell phone off, no. Uh, philosophically, um, I don't really care about this equity stuff, racial equity stuff, you may not say that in a crowd, but you may be thinking that. Let's just talk about why that actually is not the right approach. Even if you don't believe that philosophically, let's just talk about economics and money. So income inequality has been inextricably shown to affect the economic performance of a city. There's studies, there's cross-country studies, domestic, state-to-state, regional, however you cut it, this is just, at this point, almost a given. So one of the things you want to think about is if there is income inequality, and that income inequality typically aligns with race, so if, you, if you're not doing things that are intentional to racial equity, then you're leaving yourself at income inequality, and you're doing a disservice to the fiscal health of the city. So put aside philosophy, let's just talk about economics. But we could talk about other things. We could talk about real estate. So the Urban Land Institute, I'm a trustee of ULI, Um, said, you know, let me go interview important real estate professionals around the country, investors, brokers, developers, institutional advisors, the whole nine yards. And they have top 20 issues, and every year they do this Trends um, conference and put out this report. And as you can see, social inequality and income inequality always show up every year. And so these are the top minds in real estate who are saying, in terms of my ability to invest well, in terms of my ability to get my returns, to return money to their shareholders if they're a publicly traded company, inequality and issues of equity are important to them. So again, even if philosophically you're like, hey, philosophically, I don't really care about the city's GDP, but I'm a real estate guy or gal. Well, this is important for real estate too. and then finally, you, you, every once in a while you just want to you know, listen to a billionaire. So this is Larry Fink um, from BlackRock. Um, and you know, BlackRock controls about $6.3 trillion assets in the management, is their terminology. And this is a letter that he sent a, he sent a letter about a year, maybe two years ago, to all of the companies in which BlackRock invests. And again, Six trillion dollars, so these are serious companies, institutions in and of themselves that he's investing in. And he said, if you're not focused on equity, if you're not being mission driven and have a mission alignment, and thinking about these things, if you're not doing that, you're likely to have subpar returns. So again, irrespective of philosophy, it's just bad economics. It's just bad investment in your city to not think about equity and not think about racial equity because the two are always, almost always intertwined. There's also issues of geographic equity as well that don't necessarily line up with race. So just wanted to have that probably extended sidebar because sometimes there's a question of, well, should I even care about this stuff? So just want to disabuse folks of that thought. But the reason why I use the, the phraseology let's assume differently is I think oftentimes people think racial equity is a default option. We might think as urban planners, as placemakers, as real estate developers, if we do what we usually do and we do that well, then all boats, how many people here have heard somebody say all boats rise? Well, it turns out (laughs) that all boats don't rise. And it turns out that some people don't have a boat. Some people can't swim. And so my point here is you need to assume differently. And another way to say it is racial equity is not a default option. In other words, as you think about urban planning, as you think about city policy, as you think about transportation investments, infrastructure investments, as you do what you do, unless you specifically do it with racial equity in mind, it will not happen. Not that it will end up neutral, it will not happen so we have to assume differently we have to assume that unless i put racial equity not as page 37 of the urban plan but i think about urban i think about equity Somebody laughed at that. Think about equity in every page of the plan. And and also, when you think about equity, think about historic disinvestment in neighborhoods and say, well, even if I go do the right thing, the thing that we learned in school, we we heard a speaker that said, make places livable, more walkable, transit-served, and multimodal there's a chance that if I do that without thinking about racial equity and the historic disinvestment, that I actually might exacerbate those issues. So we have to have racial equity and equity top of mind when we, when we do what we do on an everyday basis. So every, there shouldn't be an equity section of the urban plan. It should be embedded, it should be obvious, it should be, it should be talked about. And actually, speaking of talked about, Almost as a side note, you ever heard the phrase, um, if you're not at the table, you're on the table? Some of you may have heard it said, you're on the menu. It's like, yeah. Um, It's also a question of not just are you taking into account equity, because look, We've gone to school, we have graduate degrees, we're white collar professionals. At some point, we need to have the folks who have lived in the neighborhoods that have been disinvested, that haven't received the same opportunities. We actually need to have them at the table because their lived experience might lead you to different answers. Now we might, and you know, a lot of folks here might consider themselves progressives, but just because you're progressive doesn't mean you're woke. And so you have to say to yourself, Maybe I need to get other people in the room. I'm thinking the right things. I have the right ideas in mind. But at some point, you may not get to the right answers when it comes to racial equity if you don't have folks who have the lived experience of not having equity. So just another way of thinking about assuming differently. And one of the reasons, and I talked about it's not a default option. I should give you some actual um, facts. And so I showed you the algorithms, AVs, earlier. Not only do the algorithms not see bikers, what else do they not see? Anybody know the answer? They don't see people of color. There's just a study. And again, this goes to the way algorithms it's built. They're built based on data sets, and they're also built based on the people who are putting the data sets in and how they set things up. And I don't know a lot about this technically, but the basic idea is if you think about the inputs, you get certain outputs. And right now, the algorithms have been shown not to see black people, not to see people of color because of the darkness of their skin. And so racial equity is not a default option, because unless you do something affirmative now to think about the data sets that are going in, think about who's at the table with those data sets and who are building those algorithms, you're not going to end up with racial equity when it comes to autonomous vehicles on the back end. It's just another version of the 1950s highway system. right? We know about Lakeview Terrace. We know what happened when you put a highway. If anybody was from um, Miami, Florida and knew the Overtown story where they ran a highway through it, you can tell that story in 50 states. So you can have all the great urban planning, but now that you think about yourself as a transportation professional and you think about yourselves as a community shareholder, you know that you're going to have to be vigilant on those other transportation decisions and these algorithms and all these other things because race... And racial equity is not the default option. Another example, I talked about complete streets, making streets multimodal. Well, one of the things we found in our study, our National Complete Streets Coalition found, as you can see from the visual, is that people of color get hit more often. Now, I'm going to put aside the study that said that when they actually studied this, that individual people tend to hit, hit people of color more. Let me say that again. People who are in cars tend to hit people of color more. There was a study that showed that as well. But putting that to the side, one of the things we found, and, and you know this, so when we talk about historic disinvestment, we talk about pedestrian infrastructure, multimodality, and the like, and we know those neighborhoods don't tend to have those things. And the result of that, and those, the result of those decisions is racial inequity. And you can see it here, there, um, on that slide, as well. Um, and one other way, um, anybody have a guess on the amount? This was a, there was a study recently that just talked about comparative amounts of air pollution that people have to live through. And so they compared people of color to white people. And I'm sorry for saying white people so um, directly, but that was the point of comparison in the study. What would people say was the percentage Increased amount of pollution that people of color in their communities have to deal with. How many people say twenty percent? So a twenty percent increase. How many people say forty percent? Wow, kind of cynical crowd here. Fifty percent. Sixty percent. Okay, well, the sixty percent folks have it. So again, we can do all the right urban planning, we can do all of the things we usually do, but racial equity is not a default option unless we do things intentionally on purpose and think about these are land use decisions, right? These are where the plants are located, what the zoning says. These are the things that are right in our urban planning wheelhouse. But if we weren't thinking about racial equity and say, where were the last plants located? Or frankly, where were the fastest streets put where when there's congestion, when there's traffic, where do those cars sit? Where do those emissions go? They sit over communities of color. We um, have a team in Massachusetts, and one of the things that we found was one out of every five children in Massachusetts has asthma, and those numbers are disproportionately even higher in communities of color. And why is that? Because of where we put the highways. But those are land use and transportation decisions. So you can't opt out, and if you're going to be a community shareholder, whether you're an urban planner, you're a business, whatever you're doing, you have to think about these things up front, and you're going to have to get in the transportation game, because if you don't, bad things happen. So we talked about thinking differently, assuming differently, but I want to put one more. Oh, actually, one more slide I forgot about, which is this is actually a drill down in a particular city, which showed that, Mrs. Nelson Nygaard, showed that actually Communities of color disproportionately have bad effects in terms of emissions. So again, this is one of those, it's a series of city-level decisions, local engineers, urban planners, and the like. But unless you think with intentionality about what the racial equity effects might be or inequities might be, you can end up with results like this. And this is what you see in Seattle, a city that <laughs> considers themselves progressive, but maybe they're just not woke yet. So act differently. Let's speed this up a little bit. Um, anybody recognize this young man? Yeah. Carl Stokes, first African and, uh, African-American large-scale city mayor in the country, so you know, got to rep that. But He also acted differently when it came to things because he thought about connections. Things were connected. It's not just one thing. It's a series of things. And one of the things he did in terms of the fire is he said, this is not just a fire moment. This is a social justice moment. This is an environmental justice moment. And so we need to think not just about this fire and how we do the same things we did. How do we fix this up? But let's think about the inequities that may occur if we don't think about racial equity and social justice as we make the decisions on what to do next. So you guys already have a history of thinking about things in an interconnected way and acting differently. And I just wanted to point out that the mayor was an example of that. But these interconnections, you know, the Green New Deal tries to say, hey, let's have a real holistic sense of how to think about, I'm going to say it, the C word, climate change, or the double Cs. But one of the things you'll find in the Green New Deal, and my big quibble with it and our quibble with it is, it leaves out land use. It talks about transportation. But as you guys probably know, you could electrify every vehicle in this country, and it would not solve the climate change problem. And so leaving out land use is an example of not thinking about, they didn't think about themselves in the most holistic, interconnected way, which I know you guys know how to do. And that's when you think about yourselves as a community stakeholder, you bring those connections together because everything is connected. So climate change, this is a picture just from 10 days ago, I think, Hurricane Barry. This is looking over Lake Pontchartrain in New Orleans. And so put aside the words climate change, let's just think about the things we are seeing. We're seeing more heat, we're seeing more rain, more incidences of hundred year storms and hundred year floods that happen on more than a hundred year basis. And yes, I understand that it doesn't literally mean a hundred years, just in case somebody wants to ask me that in Q and A, we can go on that. Um, but, um, If you're a transportation professional, if you're an urban planner that has all these transportation effects, then you need to think about climate change because what you're doing directly affects climate change. So when you build, when you think about your community design and you force people to drive, and you're not building out complete streets and giving people the chance to walk, not figuring out those first first mile, last mile solutions, what you're doing is creating the conditions that lead to more emissions, that lead to more greenhouse gases, which lead to climate change. And whether you call that term or not, that lead to all the negative effects that we're seeing. And so you have to think about these things, they're all connected. Going back to Seattle again, 50% of all the emissions in the city come from passenger transportation. But if you also look at this slide, 18% plus 14% commercial and residential buildings are also the emitters. So as we're doing our urban plans and we're thinking about buildings, I know I have at least one architect in the room, we also have to think, what are we doing and are we doing the types of things that might work for the way we think about architecture or urban planning? But when we think about ourselves as community stakeholders and we say, our community isn't just the adjacent neighborhood, but it should be the adjacent neighborhood, by the way. So if you're an institution, a hospital, an educational system, if you're just doing a big project or you're thinking about transportation, that adjacent neighborhood should be considered one of your stakeholders. But also, your community is the world, so when you're doing what you do, think about whether there are climate change effects if you just do it the same way. It's all connected. And you guys know this because you were able to live leverage this moment of the fire, which I know you've talked through during the series, to protest and push new laws and change things, even though I just heard your state just passed a law just yesterday that tried to undo some of these things. but. Put that aside, you know how to do this Cleveland, and we know how to leverage moments and think about these issues and say, they're all interconnected, so I can't just fight on affordable housing or I just can't fight on whether I got the right plan. They're all interconnected, they all go together, and the way to grow is to think about those things all together, we call that smart growth. So we could say to ourselves, hey, I'm just going to close my eyes, cover my ears, and not say anything about all these other issues, these issues where I'm not a subject matter expert, I'm just a business person, I'm just a planner, I'm just a, you're not, you're community stakeholders. So even if you're an urban planner, you're now a transportation professional who thinks of themselves as a community stakeholder. You already know how to do this, Cleveland, because you've done it. And so you took the fire, not only did you push a whole environmental movement around the country through your efforts, you were able to say, and I took these pictures yesterday, let's think about what we can do on the river differently. And now, and I implore you as my last sort of comment, is to say, is this redevelopment around the river, when you think about the West Bank and the East Bank, are we thinking about racial equity intentionally in these moments now? Thank you.
3: I'm just take two seconds here. I'm Dan Malthrop, Chief Executive here at the City Club, and today we're enjoying a forum with Calvin Gladney, President and CEO of Smart Growth America. We're about to begin the audience Q&A, and we welcome questions from all of you, City Club members, guests, students, and those of you joining us via our live stream. If you'd like to tweet a question, please tweet it at the City Club, and our staff will work it into the program. Holding our microphones today are City Club interns, Remy Orsanya and Sophia Brewer-Thompson. May we have our first question, please?
4: Twitter first. Okay.
1: Um, how can we make transportation better for lower income people and families? When we talk about mobility, the conversation usually sounds like making transportation easier, but rarely accessible for everyone in the first place. For example, Public Square moved bus routes that go to destinations within the city away to other more obscure locations.
2: It's a great question. Um, one of the big challenges on our transportation investments is What are the evaluation metrics we use in order to make the decisions on where to put a new new bus bus route or what corridor to choose? And a lot of those metrics really relate to a concept called level of service um, or um, they relate to rush hour or they relate to um, how fast I can get folks from the suburbs back to the suburbs. And so one of the biggest things we can do is change the way we evaluate our transportation decisions and think about, again, think about equity, racial equity, low wealth communities in the conversation. And so as an example, if you think about level of service and a transportation agency is saying, well, you know, there's not that many people out there, then we won't send a bus out there, then that's not a good Um, Answer for those low wealth communities that need that not just as a way to kind of get downtown and go to the great events that are downtown, go to the happy hour, but they need to get it to and fro to work. So we like to get away from level of service, get away from just headways and think about what we call destination access and to think about our transportation and our mobility options in the context of what do they allow me to access? Do they get me to where the jobs are? Do they get me to where the services are? Do they get me to where their amenities are? And not just me, but the communities that have historically suffered from disinvestment. Let's think about whether those communities, if we do what we would otherwise do, would we actually exacerbate problems there? So the big point of it, I think, is two points. One is, have we used a metric that takes into account low wealth communities when we're making the decisions? And then secondly, as I said earlier, are they at the table when the decisions are made? Cleveland has some
0: spectacular inner ring suburbs. Yes. Uh, and Cleveland Heights is one that I'm very fond of. Uh, it has struggled for years with uh, housing code enforcement issues, mm-hmm. because to be aggressive about housing code enforcement may be exactly what's required for, the, for that city to do well in the long term. But in the short term, it can have a disproportionately harsh effect on lower socioeconomic residents. And probably, for at least some of the cities, these are uh, dominantly minority populations. What should you do?
2: I'm glad the easy (laughs) questions come early. (laughs) Um, We believe in enforcing law. So there's a baseline of the rules are the rules. The question is, are we taking into account the history? The history of investment, the history of resources, the history of education, and the history of empowerment, or frankly disempowerment, when it comes to certain communities. And so I would say, we might have laws on the books. Well one, and I don't know if folks read either The Color of Law, and if you haven't you should read it, or there's a book focused on Milwaukee called Evicted. And both of these talk about really, the idea that you can have enforcement of reasonable laws on the book that is embedded in your question have disproportional effect on certain communities, but one, there still ends up being some racial bias in those enforcement actions, so disproportionate enforcement in certain communities still happens, so let's first eradicate that. but even if that was a baseline and we say those are applied fairly without any racial bias but it still disproportionately affects a community, then let's do it as a process, right? So let's say, first, let's educate all of the residents in this neighborhood of the baseline what the rules are. And frankly, not just what the rules are, but why we have those rules. And here are the public health effects, and here are all the good reasons we have those rules. And then we say, we're coming. You now know what the rules are, you understand why we have these rules, and within this period of time, we're actually gonna start enforcing these rules. But oh, we're also gonna say one other thing. We're gonna give you the financial resources to make some of the changes in your neighborhoods because you have been the neighborhoods that historically haven't had the resources not just the education on empowerment, but the resources to do the things that would get you to the place that you don't have to worry about code enforcement. So I think it's, it's a matter of not saying let's not enforce the laws, but let's make sure we educate folks, we empower them, and we give them the resources to live up to the, the actual laws that are on the books. And frankly, we tell them why we're doing it. And, and again, we make sure that there's no racial bias in that enforcement.
4: Good afternoon, Uh, my name, first thanks for being here. Um,
2: Thank you, thanks for having me.
4: uh, Racial equity uh, is not a default option, I appreciate that. Uh, My name is Merle Johnson, I'm on the Ohio Board of Education and we just did a a strategic plan and equity is on about every page. It was definitely intentional. So I could really relate to that. I taught school for 40 years. And so whenever I listen to someone speak, I always think about children who are usually on the menu. Um, they are victims of, of this uh, horrible uh, climate change and everything else that's going on. So if this audience suddenly turned into a group of high school and elementary students, what would be the first three steps that you would ask them to take to begin to move in the direction that you're talking? High school and elementary students? Yeah, high school and elementary. I want to make it really hard. Wow. <laughs> well, you know, I it's funny. Make, I, don't... I just make it high school. How, how's that? High school. Yeah, let okay. make it high school. <laughs> um,
2: I don't know if you guys have spoken and talked with high schoolers, but they're way smarter than you think. right? So the first thing I would say is, I might not have a different conversation at all. I'd say the same things. Um, partially because their orientation, they don't see climate change or whatever you want to call it as this thing that will happen down the line they see it as, and I'll make my Game of Thrones reference, that winter is coming, <laughs> right? So you don't, I don't have to do a bunch of slides to convince them that there is a series of issues, whether you call it climate change or not, and that we need to do some things differently. I mean, they're the ones that are ordering oat milk cappuccinos. Now, you might say to yourself, why well, oat milk cappuccinos, what does that matter? But if you cow milk, versus almond milk, by the way. Almond milk isn't milk, right? Oat milk isn't milk. Um, but how much water, we talked about water earlier, how much water and other re- environmental resources are used just to drink milk, cow's milk? It's so much, it's disproportionately less and the lowest amount is if you, ha- you know, harvest oats. So one of the things I would say is okay, don't get too angry or sad or disillusioned when you think about the big picture of climate change, this existential threat, it might overwhelm you and you you don't know what to do. So the second thing I would say is think about your individual. What are the individual things you can do on a daily basis? What are the individual things you can do that incrementally each individual personal decision you make on a daily basis does something for climate change, does something about equity? Are you reading things and asking yourself, do you interact with folks that have a different lived experience? So those would be my three. One, I probably wouldn't have a different conversation, so I'd have this conversation. Two, I'd say, what are you doing incrementally on a daily basis at your level with your resources to make the changes that you see are necessary? And then third, are you interacting with folks with a different lived experience, whether that's race, wealth or education, because that's the only way that you're going to have the diversity of thought to make a lot of the changes and make the collaborations that you need. How are you? I'm good. How are you?
0: I'm good. Um, you've said a lot, and the, and I would love to have the uh, opportunity to debate you on many of the topics that mm-hmm. you put out there. Um, I, Anybody
2: I, up for that debate? To, to be,
0: that? Yeah, I, I'm up for that. Um, and so um, I have one you question. You did introduce yourself, kind sir. I, I'm Skip Claypool. And so I have one question, so I'm not going to try to get into a lot of the, the muck that you provided. But l- let me just ask you this. I'm a little bit older than you are. Um, you're very bright, very articulate. Mm. Um, I've really enjoyed your talk. Um, however, I've lived a f- few more years. I've seen a global ice age predicted, didn't come. I've seen a crisis of population come, didn't happen. Hmm. Um, I'm hearing now global climate change, yeah, not so much. People are having to back off of that. It's really not what people think it is. And by the way, if you think we can impact the climate, uh, you gotta really do a reality check. But that's it. here's some, a question for you. So at one time, and I'm, I have some planning experience, and I'm on a county planning board, at one time, we, we think we people are really smart and we know the right answers. Mm-hmm. At what time, the right answers was to take the into- downtown city areas and make them a mall, walkable community, if you will, mm-hmm. and it didn't work. And so a lot of cities are undoing that because it didn't work. Akron thought putting interstates downtown into the area would be a great idea. Now they're having to undo that. And so why is it that you think that this sm- whole smart growth idea is such a great idea and then that in another decade or two decades, we're going to discover, eh, yeah, this whole walkable thing works good when you're young, but when you get kids' soccer age and all that kind of stuff, you want to move out into the suburbs because mm-hmm. you want to live on five acres mm-hmm. and want to enjoy that, the, uh, the, the, a different lifestyle. So why do you think this is so smart?
2: Hmm. Thanks for the question. <laughs> <laughs> um, The concept of smart growth came out of a movement, started in multiple places kind of simultaneously, West Coast, East Coast, Midwest as well. Um, Probably in the 60s and actually early 70s and 80s. The concept. But if you unpack and get away from the vocabulary and you say, well in the 1930s, were neighborhoods walkable where people lived? In the 1930s, Did the car dominate? In the 1930s and 20s, in 1910, was there density? Did people live where infrastructure is? Were people served by multiple ways to get around? These are sort of the embedded concepts we have in what we are now calling smart growth. But they're not new ideas. So we don't feel that smart, we're actually saying let's go back to the future And let's think about all of the things that we've changed because we've created an automobile dominated industry and community, both by law, by infrastructure, and by fiscal choices. And let's do the things that can change how we live and how we get around in a way that changes both these equity issues, but also fixes some of the problems that we started by not doing the things that we didn't call smart growth, but was just the way we lived. Main Street. The idea of Main Street in small towns, those are ideas, these are not new ideas, these are old ideas. So we don't necessarily think that we're particularly smart. We actually think that if you go back in history and look at what worked and the public health benefits of having a certain way to live and people not living on five acres, because also when you look back at the history, you have to say, well, people lived on five Aprils when there was not as many people. So, you know, we have to say to ourselves for real, like what is the reality of with this amount of people and these amount of changes in our environment, whatever we want to call them and whether we believe there'll be existential crisis, whether the world ends or we just see consistent bad weather, more flooding, more heat and more of these other effects even if the world doesn't end, that's gonna dramatically change how we have to live. So, I don't know that we necessarily feel like we're that much smarter. We're just trying to take what we learned from history and apply it to the realities of today and in the future.
1: Thank
3: you. Thank you. Calvin Gladney. Today at the City Club, we've been enjoying a f- our final forum in our Igniting the Future series. Today we heard from Calvin Gladney, he's President and CEO of Smart Growth America. Our forum today is the James S. Lipscomb Memorial Forum on the Philanthropic Spirit in in Community Leadership, made possible by a generous grant from the Friends of James Lipscomb. We thank them for their continued support, and all of you for your continued support of City Club Programming. This was, as I mentioned, part of our Igniting the Future series, sponsored by the Cleveland Foundation and the George Gund Foundation. We're so pleased to have Stephen Love and John Mitterholzer from those respective foundations and their colleagues with us today. Thank you so much. And thank you for supporting City Club's sustainability programming. Our program today is also part of APA Cleveland's We Plan CLE, We Plan CLE initiative. And our community partner is Sustainable Cleveland, our hospitality partner, the Metropolitan at the Nine Hotel. We appreciate the partnership of all of these organizations. And finally, we welcome guests at a table hosted by the Western Reserve Land Conservancy. Thank you for being here. That brings us to the end of our program, ladies and gentlemen, members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland. Our forum is adjourned.
2: For information on upcoming speakers
0: or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on Ideastream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.